Jeremiah chapter 41. In the seventh month, Ishmael the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama, one of the royal family, one of the chief officers of the king, came with ten men to Gedaliah the son of Ahikam at Mizpah. As they ate bread together there at Mizpah, Ishmael the son of Nethaniah and the ten men with him rose up and struck down Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, with the sword, and killed him, whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah, and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. On the day after the murder of Gedaliah, before anyone knew of it, eighty men arrived from Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria, with their beards shaved, and their clothes torn, and their bodies gashed, bringing grain offerings and incense to present at the temple of the Lord. And Ishmael the son of Nethaniah came out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he came. As he met them, he said to them, Come in to Gedaliah the son of Ahikam. When they came into the city, Ishmael the son of Nethaniah and the men with him slaughtered them and cast them into a cistern. But there were ten men among them who said to Ishmael, Do not put us to death, for we have stores of wheat, barley, oil and honey hidden in the fields. So he refrained and did not put them to death with their companions. Now the cistern into which Ishmael had thrown all the bodies of the men whom he had struck down along with Gedaliah was the large cistern that King Asa had made for defence against Baasha king of Israel. Ishmael the son of Nethaniah filled it with the slain. Then Ishmael took captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters and all the people who were left at Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah the son of Ahikam. Ishmael the son of Nethaniah took them captive and set out to cross over to the Ammonites. But when Johanan the son of Korea and all the leaders of the forces with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael the son of Nethaniah had done, they took all their men and went to fight against Ishmael the son of Nethaniah. They came upon him at the great pool that is in Gibeon. And when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan the son of Korea and all the leaders of the forces with him, they rejoiced. So all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Johanan the son of Korea. But Ishmael the son of Nethaniah escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. Then Johanan the son of Korea and all the leaders of the forces with him took from Mizpah all the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael the son of Nethaniah after he had struck down Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, soldiers, women, children and eunuchs, whom Johanan brought back from Gibeon. And they went and stayed at Giruth Kimham near Bethlehem, intending to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them because Ishmael the son of Nethaniah had struck down Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. Jerusalem has fallen to the Babylonians. Judahite rulers, mighty men and craftsmen have been deported to Babylon. In the wake of the disaster, Gedaliah, the new governor under the rule of the Babylonians, is trying to establish a new order within the land. The situation is fraught, however. On the one hand, he has to keep on the right side of his new overlords, the Babylonians. On the other side, he's going to be dealing with a fractious and restive people that will always be tempted towards some sort of rebellion. There are also people among the ruling classes who will resent the fact that he's been advanced ahead of them. There are nearby kingdoms like that of Baalis that will resent the power of the Babylonians coming to be established in their region. At the end of the preceding chapter, the new governor Gedaliah had been warned about a plot hatched between Baalis the king of the Ammonites and Ishmael the son of Nethaniah. Johanan had asked for permission preemptively to strike Ishmael in order to ensure that the plot didn't come to pass. If it did come to pass, it would threaten the fragile order in Judah and bring devastating consequences for everyone involved. 
Gedaliah, however, does not seem to have believed the warning given by Johanan and did not give him permission to strike Ishmael. Tragically, the intelligence that Johanan had brought to Gedaliah was accurate. Ishmael was plotting against his life, and in the seventh month, he strikes Gedaliah down. The exact chronology at this point is uncertain. It happens in the seventh month. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. However, Jack Lumbum raises the possibility of a telescoping of Gedaliah's governorship. The city falls back in July, in chapter 39, verse 2. In August and September, the summer fruits are gathered. In chapter 40, verse 12, that's mentioned. And now in verses 4 to 5 of chapter 41, pilgrims are arriving into Jerusalem for tabernacles. It is possible that the assassination of Gedaliah happened a few years later, provoking Nebuzaradan's return and the further deportation of 582 BC, mentioned in chapter 52, verse 30. If such a chronological telescoping has taken place, perhaps the book of Jeremiah is encouraging us to consider the death of Gedaliah against the backdrop of the festal calendar. It's underlining the fact that although it has first fruits, it does not arrive at the Feast of Ingathering. At this point, we discover that Ishmael was a member of the deposed royal family, although probably not in the direct line of descent. This would have made him one of the potential rivals to Gedaliah, who represents not the house of David, but the scribal family of Shaphan, which had tensions with the Davidic king at various points, especially under Jehoiakim. It was understandable that Baalus, the king of the Ammonites, would use such a man to get to Gedaliah, possibly with promises to support him as a prospective king of Judah in Gedaliah the governor's place. The assassination of Gedaliah is also recorded in the book of 2 Kings, in chapter 25, verse 25. But in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Ishmael carries out the assassination to feast. As a ruler, Gedaliah would be trying to forge alliances, in part through showing great hospitality to other people whose support he needed. At this time, Johanan and a number of the other leaders of the people seem to have been elsewhere, so it's a promising situation for Ishmael's insurrection. Not only will Gedaliah be off his guard at a banquet, he also won't have the same number of people around him to retaliate if his life is taken. The men who are around him are killed too, along with the Chaldeans, and naturally the killing of the Chaldeans would have provoked a serious response from Babylon. The fact that people do not seem to have been prepared provided the conditions for Ishmael and just ten men to achieve this insurrection. The next day, people still do not realise what has happened, and 80 men are coming down from the north. In other situations, this might be seen as a promising sign that the north and the south, under the governorship of Gedaliah, might be joined in a new unity. One people beyond the division of the kingdoms might be re-established, and when the repopulation of the land with the former exiles and the re-establishment of the Davidic king occurs, they might be one people, whereas formerly they had been divided. The influence of the faithful worship of the Lord had already been expanding north under the reign of Josiah. In 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 19-20, to 20, we discover that many of Josiah's reforms occurred north of the borders of Judah. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars, and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. The men are coming in a state of mourning. The temple has been destroyed. The true worship of God is not occurring as it had formerly done. 
but it is still possible to present grain offerings and incense, even in the site of the destroyed temple. However, the fact that they have their beards shaved and their bodies gashed suggests that they have adopted some of the mourning customs of the nations, things that they had been forbidden to do in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, for instance, You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any boldness on your foreheads for the dead. Ishmael feigns that he is mourning too and goes out to meet them. He summons them in to meet Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, but Gedaliah, of course, has been killed. The violence of Ishmael is going to spread even further in the land. The northern pilgrims, who seem to have good intentions, are killed by Ishmael, perhaps because they are inconveniencing him, perhaps because they have witnessed something that they should not have, perhaps because he fears they might inform the Babylonians about him. Ishmael and his men take them by surprise and kill them, save for ten men who are spared because they have supplies hidden. Seventy are killed, ten are spared. Ishmael throws the bodies of all of his victims into the great cistern that Asa had dug as a defence against the northern king of Baasha. Perhaps this underlines the way that violence between the north and the south has erupted again, even when there was a possibility that the people could be brought together as one. Ishmael gathers the rest of the people, along with the daughters of the royal house, and then goes to flee to the Ammonites. Baalis will give him protection until the time has come for the next stage of the insurrection. Johanan and the forces who are with him discover what Ishmael has done. They've been away from the scene of Mizpah, and now they are returning. They come upon Ishmael at the great pool at Gibeon. This pool was formerly famous during the conflict between David and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. The men of Joab and Abner had fought at the pool. All of the captives that were taken are recovered, while Ishmael and eight men with him managed to escape. Presumably two of the men that he had at first had either deserted or been killed. However, although Ishmael has been defeated and the people recovered, the political situation in Judah is now so unstable and the killing of the Chaldeans such a provocation to the Babylonian overlords that Johanan and the other men with him seem to think that there is no chance of a peaceful situation now. The Babylonians are going to come and bring their reprisals and they do not want to be around for that. They gather the people together at Giruth Kimham and prepare for the flight into Egypt. A question to consider. How many other examples of coups and insurrections can you think of in the history of Judah and Israel? In what ways can the insurrection of Ishmael be compared and contrasted with them? 2 Corinthians chapter 9 Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated, to say nothing of you, for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, 
his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 continues Paul's discussion of the gift to the saints in Jerusalem from the previous chapter. Paul makes a well-calculated rhetorical appeal to the Corinthians here. He is quite invested in their response, because he has boasted about them to the Macedonians, much as he boasted about the Macedonians to them in the previous chapter. The Macedonians' positive response he described in the previous chapter was spurred in part by the Corinthians' own initial zeal for the collection. The Macedonians had gotten the impression that the Corinthians had surpassed them in their zeal in this matter, but now the Macedonians, who had caught the zeal for the collection from Paul's report about the Corinthians, might find out that the Corinthians had grown sluggish. Paul is concerned that if some Macedonians accompany him when he visits the Corinthians and finds their collection incomplete, both he and the Corinthians would lose face. For this reason, Paul has sent on an advance party to prepare the Corinthians for his visit, so that they have the collection that they have promised ready in time. Paul is concerned that it be a willing gift, not a sort of tax. It should be an overflow of grace and love. The willingness of the gift is extremely important and determines its nature and the blessing associated with it. Paul isn't commanding the Corinthians to give. To command them to give willingly would be to undermine the character that their gift must have. The gift should be an expression of their hearts and a communication of their love and gratitude. However, he is very strongly exhorting them to do so. An appropriate gift will be self-determined, without reluctance, without external compulsion and cheerful. There is something about the ideal character of Christian obedience revealed here. Such loving action from the heart is the character of true gift and service. And this is all integral to the logic of grace. God causes his grace to abound to us to the end of our fruitfulness in good works. These good works are works of gratitude, works that flow from the heart. God makes all grace abound to us so that we may have all sufficiency in all things at all times. The repeated alls underline the fullness and the comprehensive character of the grace of God, as do the terms abound and sufficiency and these sorts of expressions of completeness. God addresses all of our needs in every situation, and this is all so that we might abound in every good work. The fullness and extensiveness of God's grace is answered by the fullness and extensiveness of our freely given good works. These good works are not ways that we earn God's grace, but are ways that we respond to and live out of God's grace. They are the appropriate gratitude that answers to God's prior gift. Good works are necessary for the Christian, as they are the very way that we live out of the reality of God's grace and goodness to us. God is scattering his righteousness abroad, providing what the poor need. His righteousness is his covenant-keeping justice, his goodness to his people. And this distribution is what supplies seed to us and the harvest that results. 
we become the righteousness of God as we become fellow workers with him in this manner. God provides us with what we need to do the good works that he has prepared for us. Grace produces grace. God's gift of grace to us is a scattering of seed to sowers, involving us in a cycle of grace ourselves. We must become participants in the spread and the growth of grace ourselves, and then we will enjoy the bountiful fruits. Paul argues that the gift of the Corinthians, which arises from the gifts that they themselves have received, will produce a rich and bountiful harvest. Not only will they be providing for the needs of the Jerusalem Christians, they will also be proving themselves fertile soil for the seed of God's grace, as the seed of his grace in themselves produces a bumper crop of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving and the giving of glory to God is what it is all intended to lead to. As a consequence of the Corinthians' generosity, in expression of their thanksgiving for what they have received from God through the Jews in the Gospel, much thanksgiving will result. The Jerusalem Christians will glorify God for what he has done through the Corinthians. The hearts of the Jerusalem Christians will be more knit to the Corinthians, and they will long for greater fellowship with the Corinthians and intercede for them, recognising the greatness of God's grace to them. This will all serve the purpose of Paul's ministry of reconciliation, which isn't just about reconciling man to God, but also about reconciling man to man, Jews to Gentiles, slave to free, male to female. God's grace produces grace in its recipients, and expressions of this grace produce the return of that grace to God in joyful thanksgiving. Grace drives the entirety of Christian existence. Once again, it is in the context of a supposedly mundane and practical issue, a relief collection for Christians in Jerusalem, that some of Paul's richest theological reflection is found. In this case, a discussion of the way that grace must animate everything about our lives as Christians, and how Christian good works are the germination and growth of the seeds of grace within our lives. Recognising the logic of grace as Paul describes it here, we'll also see that our appropriate expression of grace leaves us richer, even as we are giving to others. The more that God's gracious gift to us is expressed in our gracious gifts to others, the more that we come into possession of God's gift. A question to consider. What light might this passage shed upon the knotty issue of faith and works as they relate to our standing before God?